Good morning, everybody. How's everyone this morning? Surviving all this, uh, this nasty cold and wind? Hold on for the, this day, and tomorrow it'll be above freezing, and next day it'll be in the 40s, and next day it'll be in the 50s, and looks like for the next two weeks it's going to be in the 40s and 50s. So this, this might be our only little shot of winter. All right, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started with our class this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we just uh, ask your blessing upon this day. Father, help us as we look into your word and we discuss the things of you and talk about uh, the theology of the Bible, Father. And I just pray that you would guide us and direct us. Uh, Lord, I pray for each and every class that's meeting, and I pray for the service to follow, that you would... uh, be pleased in what we do. You would be glorified. And, and Father, uh, we just pray that you would uh, change our lives and just help us uh, to be more like Christ. And we ask it in your name. Amen. All right. As I just mentioned, uh, today we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Bible. Uh, the Bible, the word Bible means roll or book. Okay? That's basically what it means. It's... it's uh, you know, it is a roll or scroll or book. Um, it's from the word biblios. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about, and, and there's numerous things we need to talk about as far as the doctrine of the Bible. First thing I want to mention is something I mentioned briefly last week, and that is uh, when we were talking about the preconditions for doing theology, okay, for being able to think about and understand and talk about God. One of the things I mentioned was language. It all begins with God because there's no way that we as finite created beings could understand anything about God unless God wanted to be understood. We, we couldn't do it. We, we couldn't sit, or, sit around and put our heads together and, and think about what God was in any accurate sort of way and have a conversation if God didn't make himself known. It's not possible. You know, God is, is you know, beyond our universe and in our universe, as we talked about last week. He, you know, the theistic view is, is God is, is great, you know, he's the creator. He's greater than anything else. He's beyond anything else. However, we also believe God has entered into his creation uh, and continues to enter into his creation. Uh, he's present in his creation and outside of his creation. But if he did not enter into it, there's no way his creation could ever know him. Okay? Uh, and, and so language is important. And I, I mentioned last week like that language is really an incredible gift from God. The very fact that we can even talk to one another, communicate our thoughts to one another is an amazing gift. But now think of what it it means that we can communicate to God and we can have communication from God. What an incredible gift that is. So it all starts there. It starts with God. I want to read a couple things. And and, uh, today I'm going to use, last week I mentioned Norman Geisler's systematic theology. I'm going to use that quite a bit today. Also Charles Ryrie's basic uh, theology uh, though I didn't bring that with me, but I have some notes from, from Ryrie. So those, those are kind of the two that I'm using today for the most part. If you guys have any interest in 
and you know, trying to, um, to just wondering what, what I'm, I'm using. Let me read a couple things from Dr. Ryrie here about the precondition, or, or excuse me, uh, Dr. Geisler, the precondition of language. It says, evangelicals believe that the Bible is God's word in human words. Therefore, another precondition for doing evangelical theology is the belief that finite human language is capable of meaning, meaningfully expressing the nature of the infinite God of Christian theism, which is displayed in both general and special revelation. Evangelicals reject any alternative that denies it is possible to speak meaningfully about God. This includes views uh, such as are embraced by many atheists, agnostics, skeptics, and even religious mystics and existentialists. He's pointing out the fact that a lot of critics of the Bible would make the argument, there's no way you can speak intelligently about God because how could you know anything about God? How, how could the, the, the human mind understand and speak anything about God? And like we said, that was the problem. However, we believe as Christian theists that God has made himself known, okay? And that's what Dr. Geisler's talking about here. We reject any uh, position that says that God has not, you know, made himself known, that we can't have a real discussion about God. Let me continue to, to read. It says, evangelical theology affirms that God has two great revelations, special revelation in the Bible and general revelation in nature. Both involve an analogous understanding of God. In other words, when they say analogous, that means that they're not describing exactly what God is or how God is. That's impossible for us. Our minds can't comprehend that. No matter what God tells us, we cannot fully understand him. Okay, we can't plumb the depths of who God is. However, God does speak to us when, it, when it's saying that something is an analogy, God is telling us what he is like. That, that's basically what it's saying. That, that how God communicates to us uh, is by telling us what he is like. Not exactly what he is or how he is, because we couldn't grasp that, but he tells us what he is like. Uh, and, and that, you know, helps us to understand God to the best that we can. He goes on to say the Bible is emphatic about two things in this connection. First, God is beyond our thoughts and concepts, even the best of them. And he, he points to Romans 11.33. And actually, let me uh, read Romans 11.33 uh, for you because that's almost exactly what you know, Romans 11.33 says. Should have looked this up and marked it, but I didn't. It says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. The Bible basically tells us it's impossible for us to, to fully understand God's decisions and his ways. He's beyond us. Okay? Geisler goes on to say, God is infinite and our concepts are finite. And no finite concept can capture the infinite. It is also clear in Scripture that God goes infinitely beyond the puny ability of human concepts to convey his ineffable uh, essence. Paul said, now we see in a mirror dimly. John said, mortal man uh, in, in this life, uh, of mortal man in this life, no one has seen God at any time. Second, even though we can't fully 
understand God. The second point is human language is adequate for expressing the attributes of God, for in spite of the infinite difference between God and his creatures, there is not a, lack of, a total lack of similarity, since the effect always resembles the efficient cause in some way. That's why one of the reasons that the Bible says God created us in his image. If he had not done that, there's no way really we could have any kind of communication. You know, he is the cause, we are the effect, we are what he has created. And so there is enough similarity in that that God can, you know, can make communication between us. He gives us the ability essentially to understand. But if God is both adequately expressed in and yet infinitely more than human language, even inspired language can express then at, the best, the, the, then at best, the human uh, language of Scripture is only analogous. No term taken uh, from human experience, and that is where all biblical terms come from, can do any more than tell us what God is like. None of them can express comprehensively what God really is. Religious language, at best, can make valid predications of God's essence, but it can never express his essence fully. I just want to read one more uh, just kind of summary. He says, the linguistic precondition of evangelical theology is that we do have some positive knowledge of God. Human language, however limited, is capable of making true statements about God and his relation to the world. You might even ask, well, why is any of that important? Well, that is largely the, the theological and the philosophical battleground uh, between Christians and atheists and skeptics. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, that's one of the great arguments that takes place between those who doubt the faith and those who are of the faith, that we have revelation from God. You know, we have a message from God, and it is a real message, one that can be understand, understood and that our language can actually speak intelligently and knowingly about. Can't understand God completely, but we can understand enough of what he says about him that we can live in relationship with him, okay? So the importance of the doctrine of the Bible is, is enormous, because the Bible, and, and here let's basically go with a definition, the, the Bible is God's communication to man. It, it is, is a book or a scroll or a roll that contains God's words to us. His communication to us, where he tells us about himself. He tells us about ourselves. He tells us about the relationship between us and him. All the information, essentially, that we have from God in, in special revelation comes from the Bible, and later on we'll see also from the person of Jesus. because Jesus is the declarer of God. He is the one who came to declare God. Okay? And we'll talk here in, in a second about uh, uh, general revelation. I, I just want to first define this term rev revelation. I'll give uh, Dr. Ryrie's uh, definition for revelation. It is a disclosure, especially God communicating his message to man. Okay, so Charles Ryrie, Ryrie describes revelation as a disclosure. It is God disclosing something that until he did that would not have been known. So it, it is it's a, a disclosure from God, especially, you know, dealing with God communicating his message to man. Now, 
general revelation or what we sometimes call natural revelation. How has God shown himself in nature, in the things that he has created? This is the thing that we think of when we are, you know, out watching a sunset or a sunrise and we think, oh my goodness, how great the being must be who made that. That is, you know, the essence of what we're talking about when we're talking about general or natural revelation. The Bible's very clear that this is a real thing. It's also very clear that we are limited in what we can know about God based upon that. Let me read one of the, the classic test, texts on, uh, you know, natural revelation in the Bible, Acts chapter 1, and, and uh, we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. Now, this is dealing with a lot of things, a lot of things we don't necessarily have the time to go into today. There's a whole bunch of different things here, but I want to stress today, uh, you know, the, the, the part that is talking about God's revelation and what we can learn uh, from that. It says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. So there, you know, God says he's made it obvious to people, okay? He's part of the truth about him. They, uh, it says, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So that's God's indictment against, against mankind. He said, when you stand before me, you have no excuse because essentially I put my fingerprints on the world around me that I made. Ever since things were created, you've been able to see the earth and you see the sky. And in that, you can know two things essentially he, he lists here. Uh, two of his invisible qualities. You can know his eternal power and, 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 and his divine nature. That, that whoever created that must have an unlimited amount of power and greatness. Just look at what he's done. And that helps us to understand a bit of his divine nature. That whoever did that isn't just a person. No, no man came on, uh, along and said, hey, click, let's make the sky. Not possible. Had to be divine. Had, not just someone powerful, but someone that is beyond us, that is beyond this universe. So God says you can find a couple things about me through the world you see around me, through what we call general or natural revelation. You can understand that I'm there, that there's a God there, and that I have incredible power. Now, you notice that there's things, though, that you don't understand. You don't know anything about Jesus. You don't know anything about him dying for our sins. You don't know anything about our lost state and what has to take place in order for us to be saved. There, there's a great deal of things you don't know from that. But you do know that there's a God there and he's powerful and I should worship him. That, that's what the passage is saying. Now, I want to keep on reading just a little bit because he, he shows, well, what did people do with that knowledge? Did they say, look, God, I, we don't know everything about you. We can't figure it all out, 
But man, I look at this earth, I look at this sky, and I just know that you're there, and I know I should worship you. That's what man should do. That's what he's saying. Did people do that? No, they didn't. Yes. Romans. Did I say Acts? Oh, I apologize. Romans 1. Romans 1. Sorry about that. I didn't realize I said Acts 1. (laughs) Romans 1, 18 through 25. Well, obviously, people didn't do that because he begins the section by saying God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He goes on in verse 21 to say, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. See, that's what happens when kind of people just sit around and try to think up what God is like without having God reveal it to us. You know, and and, and they, they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise they instead became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth of God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That kind of closes out a section. He says, look, you know, everybody is without an excuse because I put my fingerprints out there. I let it be known that I exist and that I am all-powerful by the things that you see. And so that that should be enough for you to say, God, I want to know you. I want to worship you. I, 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 I don't know the details, but I know you're there and I want to worship you. But instead, he said, people sat around and thought of their own ideas about what God was like. They began to make idols of of mere people, of birds, of reptiles, of all kinds of things. They came up with all these crazy ideas. And it's interesting what God's response was. He said, okay, that's what you want. Go ahead and do it. You know, Go ahead and do it. Well, this is getting off topic. This this will be for a few weeks later. But you ever notice God lets us sin? He lets the world sin? We're the ones that think a whole lot more about trying to make people do the right thing. God doesn't do that. God lets people choose another direction. Tells them it's wrong. He tells them what will happen. He says, you know, that's what you want. Go do it. You'll face the punishment once over. I, I don't want you to do this. And, and so, you know, God says, he, you know, he, he basically let them do it. He abandoned them to whatever shameful things their hearts desired. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty scary verse. You know? Uh, you yeah, know, but it, right there it is. So that is what, we're talking about when we're talking about general or natural revelation. God has revealed certain things about himself, but there's not enough details in it for us to know the intricacies that God wants us to know. That's why it required God to make a a more intricate communication, what we call special 
revelation. That's why we have the Bible. And that's why ultimately Jesus came. You know, to make special revelation, to fill in the gaps that we couldn't get by looking at a sunset or looking at the Milky Way at night. You can know there's a God by doing that. You can know his power, but you can't know the details. So that's why special revelation is required. Now first, I want, I want us to read something about Jesus. John chapter 1, and this is, of course is one of the most famous passages in Scripture, and this is how John opens up his gospel. I want to read verse 1, and, and, and this whole section is, you know, based, is talking about uh, Jesus, but I want to read verses 1, verses, verse 14, and verse 8, or 18, excuse me. Um, it says, in the beginning, the Word already existed, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is speaking about Jesus, and that's what this whole section, John is speaking about Jesus, and that becomes clear as you go through that section. That word, word, uh, the logos, um, essentially means word or, or concept. Uh, you know, it, it, it is, um, you know, God talking about, it can be translated a couple different ways, but traditionally it's been translated word. I wonder sometimes it wouldn't have been better to translate it as kind of revelation because word gets a little confusing to us because we kind of think that, well, how is God a word? And we get locked up in that whole concept of what we think of words instead of the idea of, a, of you know, Jesus is God's revelation. You know, he, he reveals God. But in the beginning was the word, the word already existed, the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus was always there, always with God, and was God. If you look down at verse 14, so the word became human or became flesh and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. He talks about the word becoming flesh, becoming human, and, and dwelling among us, and us getting to see his glory. Um, you know, and in seeing him, you notice we see the glory of, of the Father. And then in verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God but the unique one, who is God himself, or, or, you know, Christ. That's who it's talking about, Jesus. And, and, and again, it, different people translate uh, that in, in different ways. Uh, some, tra some say the one and only son. Um, it says the, the unique one or the one and only son who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. No one has seen God at any time. God is, is, is spirit. He doesn't have, like when we talk about the hands of God or the eyes of God, we're using anthropomorphic language. God does not have hands and eyes. God's a spirit. He's not human. He doesn't have a physical body. Jesus Christ came and took on a, uni, a, a human body and shows us God, reveals God to us. That's what it's saying here. No one has seen God at any time, but the Son, the, own, the one and only Son, the unique, that's why it's, this translation uses the term the unique Son, he's the, on, the only one like that. We may all, you know, 
we as, as believers in Christ might be called children of God, but we are not children of God in the same way that the Son is a child of God. He has revealed God to us. So when we say that Jesus is, a, is, is part of a special revelation, in a way, he's the final part of it. He is the, the final revelation, the, the kind of the once and for all and complete revelation of who God is. When Jesus Christ came, yes, he came to die for our sins, but he came to do more than that. And John is very, you notice that's the first thing John talks about. He doesn't talk about him dying for our sins yet. The first thing John focuses on is that he came to reveal God. You know, when mankind looked up at those stars or looked at that, you know, the waves or, or, or looked at the sunset, whatever it was they were looking at, and they said, wow, something great, something amazing, something all-powerful, someone had to make that. But they could never see that person. When Jesus took on a human body, you now see that. That's the point. That's what John, you know, John is trying to communicate. You now see God. So that is special revelation. Part of it. The other part of special revelation is the Bible. Um, let me, again, read something from Dr. Geisler here about the Bible. I apologize, I have so many places marked here today. It says, the Bible claims to be a book from God, a message with divine authority. Indeed, the biblical writers say that they were moved by the Holy Spirit to utter his very words, that their message came by revelation so that what they wrote was breathed out or inspired by God himself. Okay, that's, that's our claim, that's what we believe as evangelicals about the Bible. That it is the very words breathed out by God himself. Now let me just point out that there, there are two, um, the, the two bedrock passages in the Bible in regards to this uh, you know, are in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So I'm going to read those to you, and you can follow along if you, if you would like. Or if not, you can just go back later and, and look at those. I want to start with 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. There is that word breathed out. God breathed. Okay, that's the, the literal translation of that word. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Scripture is God's word. It literally was breathed out by God. It, it comes to us from him. All scripture, he says. And it all has that, that profitability, that usefulness, that it teaches us what is wrong and it teaches us what, it, what is right. It teaches us how to correct our lives. You know, it teaches us how to live. Obviously, it teaches us the truths about God but, and, and about ourselves, 
and it teaches us how to live. Second Tim or Second Peter, chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-one. We looked at this a little bit last week, but I want to look at it again. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. The Bible that we have, now here the particular emphasis is on the Old Testament. But in 2 Timothy, the emphasis is on all Scripture. So basically the entire Bible that we have, they didn't sit around and, 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 and just think this up. They were moved by God to write the things they wrote. So the things that they wrote were exactly the things that God wanted to be written. They are his words. Now we will talk here uh, you know, shortly about that dynamic of how God used the human writers and, and their minds and the things they wanted to write and somehow made that be the things he wanted to write. That is absolutely what we believe and what the Bible teaches. However, this, the focus here is that God was the one who was moving in their lives to do this. So that when we get the finished product, it is God's word. Okay, that's the claim of scripture. That all scripture is God's word. That God moved the human writers to make it happen. And it's profitable to us in all the things that we need to know how to live for God. Okay, you guys get the picture. Again, let me read a brief statement here from, from Dr. Geiser regarding this. It says, while Peter speaks of the message originating with God, Paul says it becomes the written word of God. Paul, uh, God is the ultimate cause, and the scriptures are the authoritative result. There are numerous passages in the Bible supporting the claim that the message of the Bible came from God through men of God and was inscripturated in the word of God. Okay, so that's, that's the claim. It came from God through human writers, human authors, and was ultimately inscripturated, you know, written down, in the words of God, okay? That's, that's the claim. That's what we believe uh, as far as, as revelation. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is inspiration. And this is the question of how did God communicate his word? You, you know, it's one thing to say that we, that we believe God communicated to us. It's one thing to say that we believe the Bible's inspired and that he inspired these human writers the next question is, well, how? how? How did that work? Like, what does the Bible tell us about that? What can we learn? What can we understand? What can we not understand? I want to read, and again, this is um, one of the reasons, uh, in general, I, I like Geisler a lot. I think he was a great theologian, a great philosopher, uh, and as a philosopher, he also was very careful about language. Uh, in fact, oh, this has been back in the 70s, I think it was, 
uh, there was a group of Christian thinkers, because of the kind of the, the slide toward liberalism, there was a group of Christian thinkers that got together uh, to basically defend the idea of inerrancy and inspiration, uh, and they ultimately came to a, a, a statement that, that I believe is called the Chicago Statement uh, on, on biblical inerrancy. And then they wrote that all down into like a book form where kind of different ones wrote like different chapters on it. And the guy that was chosen to edit that book was Norman Geisel. So he's an absolute expert on this particular uh, discipline of, of, of Christianity. Um, so I think his, his definitions and stuff are really good in regard to this. He's going to give a definition here about inspiration. Now this involves something. This is this, you know, this concept. He says, in view of what the Bible says and shows about itself, a definition of divine inspiration can be formulated. First, the elements of a definition will be set forth. Then the definition will be derived from them. There appear to be six basic elements stated or implied in the Bible. And I'm going to read those to you in a brief kind of um, you know, explanation of what they are. One, the Bible has a divine origin. The ultimate source of a divinely inspired Bible is God himself, for the scriptures are breathed or inspired by him. Every word that comes from the mouth of God, uh, Matthew 4.4. 4. Scripture did not originate from human impulse, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but, but men spoke uh, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we just read that passage. Two, the Bible came through human agency. It had a divine origin, but it comes through human authors, basically, is what he's saying. And this is something that sometimes is difficult for us to understand, and this is where a lot of the, you know, the, the debate over what inspiration is takes place at, at this particular point. It says, with the exception of a few occasions, like the giving of the Ten Commandments, which were inscribed by the finger of God, the Bible did not come directly from God, but only indirectly from him through the instrumentality of his prophets. Hebrews 1.1 declares, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. The Holy Spirit moved on holy men of God. David said it well, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, his word was on my tongue. Furthermore, judging by the various vocabulary, grammar, styles, figures of speech, and human interests in the various authors, God did not disregard the personality and culture of the biblical writers when he providentially guided them to be the vehicles through which he revealed his written word to humankind. On the contrary, God, the Bible is a thoroughly human book in every respect except that it is without error. We don't often think of it in that in the sense that it is a human book and a divine book. God used real human authors, and, and they weren't robots. You know, th this isn't some sort of like divine writing, you know, where they sit there and their arm moves and they don't know it's moving. That's pagan type stuff. But unfortunately, a lot of Christians buy into that concept. That is not what we believe as Christians. He goes on to say, regardless of the mystery surrounding how God was able to make his words certain without destroying the freedom and personality of the authors, several things are clear. The human authors of Scripture were not mere secretaries taking dictation. 
Their freedom was not suspended or negated, and they were not automatons. What they wrote is what they desired to write in the style that they were accustomed to using. God in his providence engaged in a divine concurrence between their words and his so that what they said, he said. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. Well, I don't really understand how that could work. Nope. Nobody really does. Not completely. It's a divine thing. You know, that, that's kind of the point. We don't really get it. But that is what the Bible teaches about itself. You know, that, that God used the personalities and the linguistic abilities and the thoughts of the human writers to write exactly what God wanted to say so that when it came out, it basically says this is God's word. And, and, and that's a difficult concept. Three, the Bible is a written authority. Inspiration deals with the written text of Scripture. It is the grapha. Uh, write, writings of the, of the uh, prophets that are inspired. The phrase, it is written, reveals that the focus of God's authority for his people was in the written word. Nowhere does the, the Bible to speak of, uh, of, uh, speaks of dis- inspired ideas or of inspired persons. To be sure, God moved on the writers, but this was to ensure that their writings were inspired. The repeated references to the very words of the prophets being from God stresses this point. It is God's word, the written word that we are talking about. If you have anybody who comes along and says, hey, I am, you know, I have God's words, listen to me. Don't listen to them. There are people that make those claims. Do not listen to them. The, the, the word is dealing with God's written word. That's where the focus is. Four, the Bible's divine authority is located in the autographic text. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, he'll go on to explain. This important fact of the divine inspiration of the Bible is implied from two facts. First, all biblical references to to the God-given authority of Scripture are to what God gave or breathed out, which was the original text. Second, not all copies of the original text are perfect. There are minor errors in them, and these can be seen by comparing parallel passages. But God cannot lie. His law is perfect or flawless. Hence, whatever errors there are in the copies of the Bible could not have been in the original text. This leads uh, to another characteristic of an inspired text. It's inerrancy. God doesn't make mistakes. We do know there are mistakes that have been made in the copying and in the translation of the Bible. We know that. We know that because we can compare different ones and see differences. But what we believe, as far as inerrancy, is that the original autographs were what was original, what, or what was, was inerrant, what was perfect. What God breathed out, what God, you know, the words God gave to those human authors who first wrote it down, those are the ones that are perfect. We do not believe we have perfect translations. There is no perfect translation. Let me stress that. Again, some believe that. That is a false teaching. There's no such thing as a perfect translation. And that is not what Christianity believes. We believe the original autographs were perfect. Once man gets their hands on something, we can mess something up. But God never makes a mistake. And so what he gave those 
writers to write in the first place were perfect. He goes on to say the Bible's original text is inerrant. If God cannot err and the original text was breathed out by God, then it follows that the original text of the Bible is without error. Hence, any real errors found in in biblical manuscripts or in translations of them were not in the original. Copies of the original are are only inspired insofar as they are are accurate copies of the original. And he quotes Augustine here. Uh, He he put it aptly, he said, "If, if we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken. But either the manuscript is faulty, or the translation is wrong, or you have not understood. Again, that's something that that, that Augustine taught in in the 300s. You know, if if there's an error, the error's with us, it's not with God. That's not allowable to say. Okay? And then sixthly, the Bible has final authority. When speaking of its divine authority, the Bible makes it clear that this is a final authority, the court of last appeal, and everything it affirms or implies. The psalmist said, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. He added, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Again, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He rebuked the religious leaders of his day for exalting their teaching above the word of God. Again, the manner in which Jesus and the New Testament writers used the phrase, it is written in the scriptures manifest uh, their belief that it was the final court of appeals in all disputes on which it speaks. So, With all those things said, then he gives a definition. Inspiration is the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit who through the different personalities and literary styles of the chosen human authors invested the very words of the original books of the Holy Scripture alone and in their entirety as the very word of God without error in all that they teach or imply, including history and science. And the Bible is thereby the infallible rule and final authority for faith and practice of all believers. That is basically what inspiration is. Yes. Yep, you're exactly right. It Yep. 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 It is. You know, if you can't couldn't hear what Tim was saying, he said when you are talking to other people about Christ, this is one of the hardest ones, maybe the hardest one for them to grasp. Because many of them will say, yes, I believe in God, but how in the world could the Bible be his word? They, they, they just, it, it is very, very hard 
uh, especially if, if someone wants to be skeptical, it's very hard to convince them otherwise. And, and he's absolutely right. That's what, you know, like I said at the beginning, this whole concept of language and God communicating, this is one of the great elements of debate when it comes to people like the late Dr. Geisler who went into college campuses and debated, debated the, the great atheists of the world. One of the things they debated about most was this concept. How do we communicate with one another? You know, how, how, how did God communicate with man? And it is difficult for people to grasp. I will say this. Skeptics, a uh, guy who used to go to church here was a philosopher. I uh, used to teach up at West Point. Some of you remember Ken, Ken Primus. Ken told me one time, he said, the, the skeptic's position is unassailable because someone can always choose not to believe. You, you don't think you can ever do enough to convince that person if they don't want to believe. You're basically beating your head against a wall. You know, if somebody doesn't want to believe, they won't believe. It, it doesn't matter. Well, Jesus showed them miracles, and they still didn't believe. So, you know, you, you are absolutely right, Tim. You, you are right. The only thing I would say is, is don't beat yourself up over it. Because if they don't want to believe, you can't make them believe. Only the Spirit of God can soften their heart to the point where they will, they will believe. You know, or, or if, you know, make them open enough to see the truth. Yep. All you can do is put put it out there. Put it out there. Yeah. It it it, it is a uh, it it is and that's one of the reasons we're starting with it. Because everything starts with it. You know, it, it's it's God's communication to man. It's how we know anything about him. You know, so it is difficult. There is no uh, you know, I'm not trying to to soften the blow at all. Um next thing, what is a prophet? Okay? What what is a prophet? Well, a prophet essentially is a spokesperson or a mouthpiece, you know, for God. It's someone who speaks for God. Now, the word prophet can be taken in a broad sense and in a narrow sense. In a broad sense, anyone who speaks for something else can be seen as a prophet. Some people like like in modern Christianity will take they, they say, well, the gift of prophecy exists today in what pastors do what Glenn does on a Sunday, what sometimes I might do on a Sunday. If we stand up there and we, we you know, speak for God, speaking his word, we are prophets. Now, I hate that. I absolutely hate it. It is a, how, how do I put this? It is a legal usage, uh, you know, it, it is proper in a way because there, there was a broader sense of what a prophet was. However, that is not how the Bible generally uses the term prophet. The Bible usually is using the term prophet in a very narrow sense. And it's speaking of the very people who God gave his words to, the people we've just been talking about. They were the ones he gave his words to so that when they spoke, they, you know, when they were writing scripture, they were speaking the very words of God. And not all prophets were writing scripture. But if they had a message, the point was it came directly from God. 
He had given them in some way a message that he wanted to be communicated, even if it was just to a one specific church or a tribe of Israel or whatever the case may be, God was giving them directly a message. It wasn't something that they read the Bible and they thought it through and the Holy Spirit guided them to understand it and then they brought a sermon. Those two things are different. One is the broad sense of the term, the other is the narrow sense, and it's the narrow sense that the Bible focuses on the vast majority of the time, okay? So I, I honestly, I hate that concept because I just think it confuses people. Be, because there's, there are groups out there right now that claim to be prophets, their, their people are prophets, and they don't mean the broad sense, they mean the narrow sense. They mean their leaders should be listened to on the same authority as God's word. That is not biblical. That is not sound. And we do not believe that. You know, the, 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 the canon of scripture is closed. We'll talk about canonicity. This is one of these doctrines that will probably take us two weeks, okay? It, 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 it's ambitious to think that we're gonna get through this all in a week. Um, and so we might not get to canonicity today, but we will talk about that. We believe the canon is closed. No more word, no, no more books of scripture coming out like, you know, no matter how great the author is. And there's some great ones out there, but they're not writing scripture. Okay? So, so don't buy that if somebody tries to sell that to you. A prophet was a, spokes, a spokesperson, someone who was God's mouthpiece, and in the way it's used in the Bible, they were given a message directly from God, whether it was in a dream or an inner voice or even an audible voice, whatever the case was, God would give them a message that he wanted them to then, you know, give to whoever they were supposed to give it to. Now, how did they receive this? I've just mentioned a couple of them, and I'm going to list a variety of ways here. Uh, through dreams. Through visions, what's the difference between a dream and a vision? Well, a dream you're asleep and a vision you're, you're awake. You go into like a trance-like state. Those are, the, those are the two. Audible voices, inner voice from angels. You know, the Bible says that some revelation came from angels. By miracles, God revealed some things that, that, that he wanted people to know by miracles. You know, somebody would say, God, I just don't understand. Show me in some way, and God would, like, make something happen that would show them. Okay, that does happen in Scripture. It's rare, but it happens. By the casting of the lot, or the Old Testament priests using the, 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 the two jewels uh, that they had in, in, their, in their clothing called the Urim and the Thummim. Okay, so, so God used a variety of different things to reveal the things he wanted to, to reveal. Now, let me just give you a few examples. One, Deuteronomy 18, and this is God speaking to Moses, partly about Moses and partly about a prophet that would come later on. I want to read verses 18 through 22. God telling Moses that this is, this is, by the way, this is at Mount Sinai. This is, you know, <laughs> Moses has gone up on the mountains and the people heard all the lightning and the thunder and basically saw the presence of God descend on that mountain in his Shekinah glory. 
smoke and lightning and fire and all this stuff, and it scared the daylights out of the people. And they're like, I don't want anything to do with this. Uh-uh. No way, Moses. You go up there. We're, we're staying right here. And God at one point tells Moses they're right to be afraid. They should be afraid. Then he goes on to say this to Moses. I will raise up a prophet like you from among the fe- your, uh, their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell the people everything I command him. I will personally deal with anyone who will not listen to the message the prophet proclaims on my behalf. Now let me stop right there. This, it would later on be revealed as you get into the New Testament, if you get into the book of Acts, that the prophet like Moses was Jesus. So some would say, well, yeah, but this is talking about Jesus here. This isn't talking about any other prophets. But I want you to notice what he says next. Because he expands this then to prophets in general. Verse 20, but any prophet who falsely claims to speak in my name or who speaks in the name of another God must die. Pretty heady thing being a prophet in the Old Testament. But you may wonder, how will I know whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord? If the prophet speaks in the Lord's name but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. That prophet has spoken without my authority and need not be feared. See, the prophets didn't make mistakes because their word came from God. Boy, this is a big debate today because the people who claim to be prophets and then prophesy things that don't happen, every once in a while somebody will point out this passage to them. You do realize if this is the Old Testament, they'd kill you. Oh, yeah, but everything's changed now that the New Testament's here. Man, a New Testament, oh, it's all different, so I can go ahead and make mistakes now, essentially is what they're saying. Bull. Bull. The very prophet is speaking about was Jesus. Who do you think found, who, who, what, who was the New Testament built on? Jesus. He was the template for this. What did God say about him? I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak exactly what I want him to speak and I will deal with anybody who does not listen to what he says. So it gives you an idea of how the prophets worked. 2 Samuel 23. One and two. These are David's last words, and that's how he begins this. He says, these are the last words of David. Obviously, this was written by somebody other than David because David died. Okay, somebody else had to insert this here. It says, David, the son of Jesse, speaks. David, the man who, raised, uh, who, who was raised up so high. David, the man anointed by the God of Jacob. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are on my tongue. That's how David understood his own sense of being a prophet. David's that rare prophet that was a king and a prophet. And how at the end of his days did he look back at that and understand it? He said the word of God spoke through him. God's words were on his tongue. 
He didn't really understand the intricacies of it. He just knew it happened. He knew that somehow God spoke through him. You know, the question that many people have asked through the years is, did the prophets know they were prophets? Well, there may have been some who didn't necessarily grasp it, but I think most of them knew. And it's clear at times because some of them come right out and say, I know I'm speaking prophecy or I know I was a prophet. Here, that's what you see David doing. Right on his deathbed, the first thing he starts to say as his last words are, I'm the one that God lifted up so high, God spoke to me. He put his words on my tongue. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12. This is the last example I give of this particular. Last example of the Old Testament. It says, they made their hearts as hard as stone, So they could not hear the instructions or the messages that the Lord of heaven's armies had sent them by his spirit through the earlier prophets. That is why the Lord of heaven's armies was so angry with them. We see Zechariah, one of the latest prophets, one of the last of the Old Testament prophets, who looked back at all the prophets before him and he said, God gave them his word. God spoke through them. And yet, people still disregarded it, still did not listen. And that's why the God of heaven's armies is so angry. We already read, um, you know, verses in, in 2 Peter 1 and 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16. But I want to read 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. I wanted to give you a verse from the New Testament. It says, and remember, our Lord's patience gives uh, people time to be saved. I hope I wrote down the reference right. (laughs) This is what our, yes, this is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do, and notice this, with other parts of Scripture. Isn't it interesting that Peter clearly considered Paul's writings to be Scripture on an even par with the Scriptures of the Old Testament? said, you know, God's patient with people. He gives them time to be saved. That's what our brother Paul teaches. Paul's hard to understand, Peter says. Some of the things he writes are difficult. They're hard hard concepts to grasp. And people twisted them. They, They make them into what they want them to be. But they're God's word. And they do the same thing with all the rest of God's word. That's what he's saying. notice what he goes on to say, this will result in their destruction. 
So those are just a few ways that it seems to work, it's inspiration. Now, a couple things I want to mention before we close today. One, the extent of, of inspiration. Well, one, it's verbal. It's located in the words itself. That's, that's basically what that means. The locus, what, what theologians will call the locus of inspiration, the location. It's located in the words. The words themselves are inspired. Okay? There's another term that is used. It is the word plenary. What does that mean? That's the harder one to understand. Verbal's easy enough. Plenary, what does that mean? Well, that not only means that it's in the words, but it is all that they teach and imply. Every part of the words, every part of, of you know, if there's punctuation there, that type of thing. Like, like Jesus says, you know, like, you know, n- nothing will be destroyed until it is fulfilled. Not, not even the, the, the swipe of a pen, essentially. Verbal plenary inspiration is that the words themselves are inspired and everything the words teach, everything they touch, everything they imply. It is all God's word. It is, it is all breathed out by him. It's inspired. Now, well, um, let me just throw this out. We'll talk about it more next week. We believe as Protestants that it is limited to the 66 books of the Bible. Now, obviously, this has been a great debate within the Christian world for many, many centuries, actually. Um, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church uh, has a, a, a more expanded canon of Scripture. They, they believe that there are other, other books that are included within it. Um, there was a certain amount of debate over what belonged in, in, in ancient Christianity, uh, but the general agreement uh, when it comes to the New Testament is the 27 books of the Bible. Um, the Old Testament is the one that is, is, has been more debated, but the Jews themselves, you know, kind of uh, early on uh, adopted the, 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 the 39 books that, that are in the, the, the Hebrew Bible or what we call the Old Testament. Uh, but we'll talk more about that debate next week. Uh, we'll get into the concept of, of uh, canonicity and, and uh, you know, how it is limited to the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, we'll also look at some of the limits that are not covered under inspiration. Okay? Um, you know, people sometimes point out, well, you know, the Bible says this. You know, like, like the sun rising or the sun setting. Well, we know the sun doesn't rise or set. You know, the, the, the earth revolves, you know, around the sun. Sun, you know, yes, that, that, but that's not what the Bible's trying to say. You know, the Bible's not trying to be a book on astronomy. You know, the Bible is, is talking about how it appears to us. We, talk, we still talk about sunrises and sunsets, even though we know that doesn't actually happen. That's the earth moving. But that's what we call a sunrise and a sunset, and that's what the Bible calls it. It's not trying to make like some kind of a, an astronomical, you know, discussion. There are actually people who, you know, Christians who believe that, who believe that, that you know, the, 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 everything in the universe circles around the earth, and there's some crazy beliefs out there. And they believe those crazy things because they take parts of the Bible 
uh, you know, and they try to turn it into something that it was never intended to be. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. Uh, and, and again, you couldn't get a better person to speak about that than Dr. Geisler. Um, so next week, we'll talk a little bit about inerrancy. We, we already talked a little bit about that, but we'll talk more about that next week. We'll talk about canonicity, and we'll talk about interpretation. So that will be Bible part two, okay? Everybody with me? All right, cool. Thank you. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be here and for, for the chance to talk about these things. Lord, some of these things are very difficult. They're hard for us to understand because we are finite created beings and we're trying to understand the things that you, our, our infinite, perfect creator, ha- have, have told us. And so, Father, uh, we ask for your forgiveness in the, in the errors that we make. We pray for your illumination of, of your truth that we would understand it. Father, we, we just uh, we love you. We are so thankful to you for what you have given us, including this great gift of language and the communication that you have given to us. Thank you for wanting us to know you. And, and just we, we love you for it, Lord. And so we just uh, ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.